All right, well, uh, this morning we're jumping into a new series, uh, a series that's titled The Journey, and uh, that means it's going to be a journey of discovery, of discovering Jesus. Uh, We'll be making our way this fall through the Gospel of Mark, Um, and uh, and so if if you have a Bible a physical Bible, just in case you do, if you were to crack that Bible open about three quarters of the way open, you'll probably land somewhere in the vicinity of Mark, uh, in a neighborhood that's known as the Gospels. Those are the first four books of the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and that word gospel means good news. And, and each of those four gospels share the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, who is and remains the most influential individual who has ever walked the face of planet Earth throughout the course of world history. And so we're going to discover who this, who this Jesus is. Each of those four gospels, they each share that story in their own unique um, flavor and, and, and vantage point, but they're all written with the same end goal in mind, and, and that is to, to make Jesus Christ known, uh, to provide a, a credible, enduring testimony about Jesus by those who knew him best, who knew him personally or, or, or knew him from a, from a secondhand point of view, which is how the book of Mark was written. It was written by a man named John Mark, and he was the uh, companion, the traveling companion of, of Peter, uh, one of Jesus's closest companions. And so the idea is that Peter told John Mark his stories, his accounts of his interactions with Jesus, and he wrote them down. So, um, so for some of you, this journey of, of discovering Jesus, this may be a brand new thing, and, and you're taking this trip uh, for the first time. I, I love that. I find that to be so exciting. I love seeing lights go on in people's faces as they connect the dots between who Jesus is and, and what it means for their lives. And, and I'm sure there's others of you who this may be more of a refresh or a restart. It's a chance to bring these realities that, that you know you've heard before, but bring them again front and center in a new and in a fresh way. And and, and I love that too, uh, because the reality is when it comes to the subject at hand, when it comes to Jesus, there's just no such thing as exhausting him. No such thing as too much. And so, uh, and so Mark's gospel, um, just as way of introduction, it kind of breaks down into two major sections. The first part asks and answers this question, who is this Jesus? And that's what we're going to camp out on this fall. And I believe that to be the ultimate question. Who is Jesus? Nothing matters more. Nothing can ever be more relevant to our lives at any given moment than getting the answer to that question right. Who is Jesus? And so in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to see that answer unfold and come into sharp focus as as we're going to see different people, episodes of different people who cross paths with Jesus in all kinds of conversations, sometimes conflicts, and other times even crises. And we're going to learn about him. And in the process, we're going to learn also about ourselves. And so as we jump in, um, I do want to invite you to just consider, 
What's your answer to that question? Who do you say Jesus is? So, so my long-term prayer as we walk through this journey, as we encounter Jesus through the living words of Scripture, is that if, if your answer to that question is kind of fuzzy and cloudy, that over the course of our time, that it'll shift and become focused and clear. And so, and so we're going to jump in, we're going to read together, and we're going to listen to three different voices, three unique voices, give their answer to that ultimate question. So here's how it starts out in Mark chapter one. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you were writing the story of Jesus, how would you start it? It's got to be a challenging thing to think through. You know, Matthew, since we have four Gospels, we get four different introductions. And Matthew started with a family tree. He connected the dots of Jesus back to the royal roots, all the way back to King David. That's how he started. Luke started with Mary and Joseph and a baby born in the little town of Bethlehem. Um, John started in the infinite expanses of eternity before the beginning of everything. But Mark starts differently. He starts out by quoting an Old Testament scripture from the book of Isaiah. And that in itself, I think, it tells us something, something really important, that that even though in the Bible we're not introduced to Jesus until we're like three quarters of the way through this book, Nevertheless, he is the main theme of what this book is all about from beginning to end. The Bible's made up of 66 different books. They're written over the course of thousands of years. They're written by different people in different places, even in three different languages. And and yet there's this incredible consistency, this, this thread of continuity that runs through it from beginning to end. And that is that it's It's all about Jesus. That's part of what convinced me personally to come to the place where I believe that this book is the actual word of God because I don't see that there's any possible way that a human being could put something like what we find here in this book together. Um, You know, after Jesus resurrected, from, from the grave, he was talking to some of his disciples on the Emmaus road and, and the disciples didn't recognize him. And in Luke 24, it says, he says that Jesus beginning with Moses and the prophets interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Um, 
So here's one clue that we want to key into is that if we want to find the right answer to that question, who is Jesus, we ought to open up this book, not just the New Testament, but search the whole scriptures because you'll find him on each and every page. So the Old Testament, before Jesus was born, it predicted his coming. Uh, The gospels proclaim his arrival and the rest of the New Testament promises his return. And so in this passage we're looking at, the start of Mark's gospel, um, there's this specific Old Testament quote, a prophecy uh, from, from Isaiah. And it describes a very particular prelude that would pave the way and usher in the arrival of the Lord. This kind of like an opening act that would set the stage for the main event. And the prophecy said that there would be this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And Mark's saying that that prophecy was fulfilled when this guy, John, arrived on the scene. It says he appeared on the scene. Now, John the Baptist, he's a bit of a throwback. It's kind of like when you're walking down the streets in town and you see someone dressed up like a hippie from the 60s. Like, you're just out of place. You don't belong here, but you're kind of cool. Um, John fits the bill of a classic, fiery, Old Testament prophet. And, and he's a bit on the peculiar side. He's, he's dressed in camel's hair. Um, He's on a strict diet of locusts and wild honey. Uh, That may be the next diet fad, by the way. Get ready for it. Um, And John is a bit of a radical. So so John probably wouldn't mix in too well at the family barbecue, right? There's just no such thing as small talk with John. You know, when he opens his mouth to speak, he is calling people to one thing. Repent. That's what he's all about. And once they repent... He wants to dunk them underwater. And that pretty much sums up what John the Baptist was all about. And the point here, the reason Mark includes this story about John is that we could read this even today and see how these prophecies, these these prophecies like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle were being put into place, falling into place. And so John is like a He's like a reference point for for what's coming next. He gives the very first human testimony about Jesus. And so here's the question. What does this opening act have to say about the main event who's waiting on deck? John says this, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, now at this point, John doesn't even know his name. He doesn't really know who he's talking about, but he knows what the scripture had promised and he comprehends that that this one who was to come, he was going to be in a league all his own. Jesus is the incomparable Christ to John. He says his strength and and the stature of his glory and his worth is so great that he says it would be out of place for me to even stoop down and untie his sandals. It's just not something I can do. And he goes on and he freely admits, people, I cannot do for you what Jesus can do, right? 
He says, there's a limit of what I'm able to do for the people that are here. And, and John, at this point, he's surrounded with all of these crowds and there's all this applause and he is in the limelight. But he says, I can't give these people what they really need because no amount of dunking in the Jordan River is ever gonna quench what these thirsty souls are longing for. And that's something we can take note of, right? Know the limits of what you can and can't do for the people in your life. There is a God-shaped hole in every person's life. And here's the headline, you can't fill it. You can't fill it. Only Jesus can. John knew better than to try to do for someone else what only Jesus can do for them. And he says, basically, you guys... You guys need Jesus. You need the one who's coming next, the the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who can satisfy that thirsty soul. And that's what we all need, the Holy Spirit. We need to live our lives connected and immersed and saturated in the presence of the living God. And Jesus, he's the only one who's able to give us that. You know, there's plenty of religious leaders and they can give you something. They can give you pages of rules to follow. But Jesus and Jesus alone brings the presence of God to experience and to enjoy. And so here's the question, who is Jesus? John says he is the one who gives what no one else can, who can give us what it is that our lives ultimately long for and what we ultimately need. That's voice number one. Let's keep reading and hear from a second voice. So we continue in in verse nine. It says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Okay, so after John the Baptist build up about this great one who's coming, I don't know about you, but doesn't it seem just a little bit anticlimactic? This is how Mark introduces the central figure, not only of this book, but of the universe. And he says this, Jesus came. It's not what you would call probably a grand entrance. And in fact, what we see here is that his entrance didn't register on anyone else's radar screen. Mark particularly accents the obscurity of Jesus' arrival, of this one that John said is the mighty one. And it kind of makes us scratch our head and say, really? Him? You know, Jesus arrives and, and he's just another face in the crowd. John baptizes him and the way it's described, it's as though Jesus is the only one who sees what happens next. The skies tear apart. The only one to hear the Father's declaration. And for all we know, when Jesus comes out of the water, John just lets him go and he says, okay, who's next? 
That's, that's kind of the way it went down. And, and there's something there for us to take note of is that your most profound and personal moments with God, it may happen in a crowd. It may happen when others are around, but don't be surprised if no one else has any idea about it, if they're not locked into that. And that's okay um, in this case because it wasn't about anyone else. This was about a sacred moment between Jesus and the Father. And that's what's getting highlighted here. And this is one of those places where, where you find in the Bible all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all together in one place. And, and you know, even though Jesus is eternal God, right? He didn't become God's Son at this, at this time. You know, um, he, he was always eternal God, but here's the thing, when Jesus added the human nature to his divine nature, when he became a human being, he surrendered the free exercise of his divine nature. He didn't just use his divine powers at will. He surrendered them to the will of the Father. And so if you think about that without getting too deep, here's what it means is that there was some kind of gradual unfolding whereby Jesus came to fully comprehend who he was. And so sometimes we wonder things like this, like, you know, when Jesus was a tiny baby, since he's fully God, was he doing like all kinds of, you know, advanced algorithm mathematics in his head when he was Googling as a little baby? Maybe not. Or, or you know, if Jesus played baseball, did he always hit a home run? Or did he strike out every batter he pitched to? Maybe not. The full extent of his true identity was revealed to him according to the Father's timeline. But the point is, is that this is that moment. And so who does God the Father say Jesus is? He says, you're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And you know, there's a way that we can identify with Jesus at our own baptisms and, and recognize that in him, through Jesus, we're also beloved children of God with whom the Father is pleased. But for here and now at this stage, it's not really about us, it's about Jesus. And, and he sees the skies rip open. He hears the Father declare, you are my son, my one and only son in an altogether exclusive way, in a way that no one else ever has been or, or, or will be. And so just, just to share in advance, just something that I found really cool in my, in my, in my study this past week, uh, there's this combination here of, of, of tearing the skies and then declaring who Jesus really is. And that happens one more time in the, in, in the Gospel of Mark. It's kind of like a bookend to Jesus' ministry because the next time it happens, it's at the cross. When Jesus breathes his last final breath, Mark tells us, he says, the curtain of the temple, that, that curtain that separated the people of God from the presence of God, that curtain was torn apart from top to bottom. And at that moment, it wasn't the father who declared who Jesus was. It was a Roman soldier, the centurion who was standing there at the cross. He says, this man truly was the son of God. So, 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 so don't make the mistake of reducing Jesus to just, yeah, he was a good guy. 
or he was, a, he was a moral teacher, or he was a political activist. He is the one and only Son of God, the one who came from heaven to this broken down planet as one of us, and he didn't come to impress us. The Son came to accomplish the will of his Father. And that's what we see. We see the Father's will getting accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in the very next verse, after this declaration, this overlooked Son of God didn't catch anyone's attention, wasn't on anybody's radar screen, but the Spirit drives him out into the desert and he's in the thick of battle. He's in the wilderness fighting the fights that we couldn't win. He's battling the temptations of Satan, of the enemy. And this is the same battle that that Adam lost uh, back in the garden when he ate the forbidden fruit. You see, Adam wasn't strong enough to win that battle. And, And you and I, we show time and time again that we're not strong enough to win it either. We can't fight that battle on our own. But this one, this one who John said is, is mightier than me, Jesus, the Son of God, he's strong enough to do it. He went there. He won it for us in the wilderness through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the second voice. We've heard the voice of John. We've heard the voice of the Father. Finally, let's listen to one last voice, the voice of Jesus. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So so these are the very first words that Mark records Jesus speaking. And in announcing the arrival of a kingdom, which is what he does, it leaves little doubt that Jesus set out to ignite a revolution. The expectation at that point was that the Messiah was going to come and ignite a political and a military revolution. But what we're going to soon find out is that Jesus was a whole lot more interested in revolutionizing the human heart. He says, the time is fulfilled. That means that the next piece of that jigsaw puzzle was about to fall into place. All of the promises the prophets had talked about, the ones they'd been longing for centuries to see come into being and take shape, the ones that are in the first two-thirds of this book all over the place about how, how God's rule and his reign would one day get established when God himself comes down onto this planet, this broken down place, and starts setting things right again. Jesus says, I'm about to kick that off. It's going to begin with me, and the time is now. And he extends an open invitation to one and all. Here's how to respond so you can get in on this. The response is twofold. He says, repent on the one hand and believe. Repent means to stop what you're doing and to turn around. 
In this case, it means give up on your plans. Give up on whatever kingdom you're in the process of building. And then believe. Get on board with Jesus. And get on board with the kingdom that he's in the process of building. And so as an example, you might, you might imagine driving your car southbound down 684. And you see Jesus standing on the side of the road. And so you pull over to pick him up. You roll down the passenger side window and you say, hey, Jesus, hop on in. But Jesus walks over to the driver's door. He points to where you're sitting, the driver's seat, and he says, I'll take that seat. But you see, in order for him to step into that seat, that's going to require that you step out of it, that you move over to the passenger seat instead And then once that happens, Jesus will take the wheel. He'll start driving. And the first thing he does is he swings the U-turn. Now he's heading in the opposite direction you were. And then picture this one hand on the steering wheel. He turns with a smile and he says, buckle up. You're in for the ride of your life. That's what he's saying in this passage. And that's pretty much how it plays out. Because Jesus walks up to these groups of guys And he invites them in. He invites them to drop what they're doing, to let go of their agenda and their allegiances and follow him. In this case, it meant to no longer define themselves by the things they used to define themselves by, by by, by the job that they do. They're no longer just fishermen. Now they're followers of Jesus. To not base their identity simply on the family they came from. They leave their father to follow Jesus. Now, don't get the wrong idea. It's not that they never fished again. It's not that they never saw their father again. What it is, is that there was this reorientation of priorities, of who they were first and foremost. And they were followers first. Followers first. And so Jesus continues to hold out that very same invitation to us today. The invitation is to follow him. And what we come to understand from these very first words that Jesus speaks about himself is that he's, he's taken the lead here. He's taken the lead here. The invitation is for us to follow him, not the other way around. You see, there's only one seat in our lives that Jesus is willing to take, and it's the driver's seat. Sometimes we want Jesus, but we want him on our own terms. You know, Jesus, you're welcome, but take the passenger seat. Take the, take the back seat. Take any other seat but the driver's seat, because so often our goal is to main, maintain control, to keep on going with our agenda. Jesus says, no thanks. Um, You know, Jesus, we can say, I don't really want to leave my boat. But you're welcome to come on board my boat. And maybe you can help us. Maybe you've got some things that you can do, some tricks up your sleeve to help us catch more fish. And Jesus waits. He's patient, but make no mistake, he's not a pushover. He does not step in until that driver's door opens up and we step out. Jesus came to spark a revolution. 
And here's the reality. Maybe there is a revolution that needs to take place. Not in the government, not in the schools, not in all these other places, but maybe in your heart. And Jesus' invitation stands. Follow me. And really what it's about, it's about letting go of the lesser things so you and I can grab hold of the greater things. And the promise is that the greater things are always the things that Jesus gives. So these are the three voices. These are the the opening scenes that set the stage for what we're going to find throughout the rest of our journey. And these voices carry They carry on today. They reach out and they reach us right where we are. John says, Jesus is the one who can do what no one else can do. He's the only one who can satisfy that thirsty soul. Maybe you've been trying things to try to find that satisfaction in all kinds of things, filling that that, that God-shaped hole with all kinds of things that just can't satisfy. John says, try Jesus. He'll do it. The father says, Jesus is my beloved son, that there's no one else like him. And he came to do my will. And Jesus says, I am Lord and master. Follow me. Let me take the lead in your life because I promise you I can do more than you can ever do on your own. And this is, this is a room, this is a church filled with people who we say, that's, that's kind of our story. In some way, at some level, Jesus knocked on the door of our heart and says, your previously planned life has been interrupted for something so much great, for something so much more. Follow me. And in some way, some level, there's a response. Stepping forward, Jesus, take the lead. Jesus, do what you will. And for those of us who are on that journey, I can tell you it is a wild trip. It is an amazing trip and it's unlike any other when we say, Jesus, take the wheel. Let's, let's pray together.